um, it is summer break for those of us who were in school and now we're on a break. Well, some of us still have some schooling or it never ends, but nonetheless, it is a time of uh, rest, hopefully for some of us. Um, uh, for me, not so much, you know, I have to keep on trucking to the ends, never sleeping, never getting any rest. So pray for my endurance, please, please pray for my endurance. No, this um, summer I'm doing some fun stuff. I'm doing micro and macroeconomics which has always been a fun interest of mine. So I got a chance to do that. So that's been enjoyable and, and getting into the weeds of that. And that's actually a touch point to where me and my wife can talk because she, she did her studies in business and she's not very mathy. So at least we can discuss uh, these kind of ideas together. <laughs> that's just a little update of what's been happening on my side uh, uh, in regards to my family and all that. Um, I love what you have going on for the summer program, the readings. Is that allowed for an outsider like me to join? Is that? Okay. <laughs> that's fantastic. I, I think that's so, so good. Well, let's uh, dive in <clears throat> to what I believe the Lord has for us in this text, which I think is a very pertinent text to our culture. And hearing what uh, uh, Mike preached on last week, I think it dovetails wonderfully. Um, you know what I find fascinating is that many Christians believe that we Christians should have no dealings with this world. Have you heard that before? Have you seen that before? Uh, that we should be completely separated from the world. That we should have our own schools, our own institutions, our businesses, and, and you name it, right? That since we are now citizens of the kingdom of God, this earth is no longer our home. Thus, we do not need to invest our time and our finances or our treasure and our energy into this world. And, and many of these good Christians who, who hold to this view take their uh, cue from 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, which reads, Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does God's will will remain forever. And so we Christians, they reason, <clears throat> should only make an effort to get to know and relate with humanity only to convert non-believers to the faith. Have you heard that before? Isn't that something? That we should only befriend the world to convert them. But at once, if they do not heed, we should abandon them. But this is not totally correct. It is my conviction that such a belief is a half-truth, that it's incomplete. Should we become friends with someone, discover that they're an unbeliever, and then hope for them to become brothers and sisters in the faith? Well, obviously, that is the desire. That is a good thing. But should we abandon the friendship if they never come to Jesus? You know, I don't believe that this is necessary in every case. As we shall see, I believe Paul provides a model for how to be in the world without being of the world. Uh, that distinction, I believe, is familiar to us, how to be in the world but not of the world. Let us pray. That I thank you for the opportunity to preach the truth of the gospel that you've given us, which was a mystery, which was a mystery, but has now been revealed through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you use me, Holy Spirit, and that you would allow me to uh, uh, preach the truth to prick our hearts to be like you, Jesus. Jesus, you are a good God. 
And you are an, an excellent example, the epitome of what it is to be someone who relates without conformity. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Spirit, we pray. Amen. I would like to take uh, as our theme this morning, make every effort to be relatable, but do not compromise the gospel. Make every effort to be relatable, but do not compromise the gospel. In our passage, Paul has just been accused of betraying his Jewish roots. In particular, Paul has been accused of teaching against the law, against Israel, and against the temple. Paul then requests to make, Paul then requests to make his defense, but I think Paul seeks to go beyond his apologetic, his personal defense. I think Paul seeks to provide a winsome case for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Luke's narrative, commentators have noted that even though Paul's speech in our passage did not coincide precisely with Pentecost, chapter 22 is Paul's Pentecost speech. Isn't that interesting? Just as Peter gave his Pentecost speech, we find Paul giving his in chapter 22. So this is significant, yeah. This is very significant. What I want to do this morning is observe Paul's tactic. You notice that in order for Paul to make his case or defense as potent as possible, Paul gives no less than eight points of common ground between him and his audience. Let's look at Acts 22, 1 through 5. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense before you. When they heard that he was addressing them in Hebrew, they became even quieter. He continued, I am a Jewish man born of Tarsus, of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel and educated according to the strict view of our patriarchal law, being zealous for God just as all of you are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women in jail as both the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. After I received letters from them to the brothers, I traveled to Damascus to bring those who were prisoners there to be punished in Jerusalem. Paul relates by speaking their language, acknowledging that he was raised in the very city of his accusers, taught by the best teacher of their tradition, Gamaliel, educated in the law, zealous for Yahweh. Paul even did more than most to persecute those who follow the way, that is, Jesus' followers. Paul even says that this is well documented by the high priest and elders. We find out later on in verse 19 that Paul even responded to the Lord's directive for him to leave Jerusalem by protesting that he could be an effective witness to his people in Jerusalem. Now, observe the reaction of the crowd as Paul shows himself to be not an outsider but one of them, somehow connected with the people. Verse 2 says that they became even quieter. In other words, by showing his detractors that he's not much different from them, open the door for reception and possible life change. I hope we're catching the nuance there. By showing the world that are not so much different from them, open the door for reception and possible life change. 
my brothers and sisters, in a time when it's so easy to separate and disconnect from the world, I believe God has called us to find some common ground with our neighbor, believe it or not, with uh, those people on our jobs and those difficult family members. If you have a family like mine, an extended family, I don't get along with every one of them. And, and dare I say, even some of my siblings. But there is a commonality, there's a humanity, there's a connection point there that may be able to open the door for the gospel, to allow them to receive the gospel. It is through this common ground that we are no longer seen as outsiders or wacky Christians. In my family, I'm a wacky, weirdo Christian. Oh, here's, here's Quincy and his, his family. Here they come being weird. You know, why don't they get drunk? Or why don't they, you know, do this, that, and the other? Because they're, they're weird. They're weirdos. But, but, but by finding a common bit of uh, ground with my family or the neighbor or the world, we are able to allow them to see that there is no deep difference between us, that without Christ, we are perhaps the same, you see. It is my conviction that until we become relatable without compromise, many in the world can even entertain the possibility of coming to Christ. They see us something far off, far away. To the world and especially to Portland, Christians are considered outsiders and foreigners in the land. And the world asks themselves, or in my context, one might ask, what could a PS student really have in common with a Presbyterian minister? What could a PSU student really have in common with a Presbyterian minister? There will always be some distance, some failure of the world to see our humanity until we can close the gap. But why was Paul making such an effort to relate to the Jewish uh, 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 brothers and sisters in the temple? Now, many argue, dare I say, that uh, Paul was scared and afraid, you know. He was trying to make a defense so that he doesn't die. But is it simply because he was afraid for his life and wanted some sympathy? I think anyone who has been following the Book of Acts series thus far knows that fear of death is not in line with Paul's character. What is more plausible is that Paul knew that if he could find common ground with his peers, and that if the Jews in the synagogue knew him as someone who was actively involved in arresting and beating believers in Jesus, right? One specific example is Stephen's execution. Then these facts should trigger the conclusion that he was now himself a believer in Jesus because he now has amazing evidence that Jesus is Israel, Israel's Messiah and Savior. Wow. To say that another way, because that was indeed a mouthful, a logical movement of ideas, to say it another way, if you and I have the same upbringing, same training, same cultural outlook, and I, like you, persecuted Jesus' followers, even overseeing the death of Stephen, since we are similar, we would need the same amount of evidence to convert. And then Paul says, I now follow Jesus. Is this making sense? Is the potency of what Paul's trying to do by relating making sense? This too should be our heart and desire to use our common ground to bring light and truth 
into the world, to show the world that without Christ, we are in fact no different than the world, that Jesus is the ultimate equalizer, that without Christ Jesus, we are not separate from the world. We're not sanctified from the world. There is no amount of knowledge or power or skill that can separate anyone so far from the human condition that they can call themselves different from their brother and sister, unless, of course, you have come to Jesus, who makes you a new man. Nothing has the power to make man new, not even the best plastic surgeon. Only by the power and the movement of Jesus Christ. But, but here is the key. We are to be relatable, but we do not and we cannot compromise the gospel. I know a host of uh, ministers who are super relatable. They wear the fun shirts and they have a worship team with the fog machines um, and everybody can come in as you are. They never preach about sin. They never talk about repentance. And everybody loves the church and they feel like they're spiritually growing. Indeed, they're relating to some degree, but they're compromising the gospel. Uh, I know a host of wannabe, well, excuse me, well, a host of Christians who uh, 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 call themselves that, but when I see their performance in their life, they look like the rest of the world. They spend their money like the world. Uh, they reason like the world. Uh, uh, they go about viewing reality like the world, and they suffer like the world. They compromise the gospel, though they think they're relating. So it must be twofold. We must be relatable, but without compromising the gospel. Amen? Now, let us turn back to our passage. Uh, let's begin at verse 19, and we'll mosey down to verse 24 in Acts chapter 22. But I said, Lord, they know that in the synagogue, after synagogue, I had those who believed in you imprisoned and beaten. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I was standing by and approving, and I guarded the clothes of those who killed him. Then he said to me, go because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This is verse 21. So key, so pertinent, so pertinent. Go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This is Yahweh speaking, verse 21, to Paul. Verse 22, they listened to him up to this word, the, the audience in the temple. They raised their voices shouting, wipe this person off the earth. It's a disgrace for him to live. My goodness, what a turn of events. As they were yelling and uh, uh, flinging aside their robes and throwing dust into the air, the commander ordered them to be brought into the barracks, directing that he be examined with the scourge so he could, be dis so he could discover the reason they were shouting against him like this. My goodness, my goodness, that's, that's wild, isn't it? That is wild. Imagine yourself in that scene and that predicament. And people are calling for your execution, calling for your demise. We must not forget that Paul knew this was going to be a tough sale. He knew before he uttered the words out of his mouth. You know why we know? Because it was prophesied in Acts 21, just the chapter before. Paul was warned repeatedly not to go to Jerusalem. So Paul knew what was at stake, but he did not, he did not, this is the key, but he did not delude, 
He did not hide or he did not sugarcoat the fullness of the gospel, not even for those he relates to the most. Isn't that something? Never delude, never hide, never sugarcoat the gospel, even to those, even for those you relate to the most. In effect, what Paul implied in verse 21, because you'll notice there it's not explicitly stated, right? People are wondering, why is everyone in an uproar about verse 21? It seems uh, benign. Yahweh just sent him to the Gentiles. But what Paul implied was that he was uh, not teaching against the law. He was not against Israel, and he was not against the temple, but that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has created a new people for his father by bringing Jews and Gentiles, male and female, all ages and all social classes together in one unified body where everyone has equal access to God the Father. And that, in fact, this is not a betrayal of the Jewish roots, but the fulfillment of God's promises given for Israel and the world. That's the power of verse 21. Amazing. Now, some say, well, Quincy, I don't see that there. How can you extrapolate that from the text? Well, we just move on to the next verse. How did, how did uh, Paul's audience react to verse 21? It seems to me that Paul's audience clearly picked up on the implication because everything was fine and dandy. Everything seemed reasonable. Everything seemed okay until Paul mentioned that Yahweh sent him to the Gentiles. If you notice in our text, there are three strong verbs recorded there. They screamed excitedly. They took off their robes, presumably shaking them out as a gesture of protest and indignation. And they were throwing dust in the air, an expression of fanatic rage. In Luke's narrative, the present tense of the three uh, participles underlies the protest in the outer court went on for some time. They protested and desired Paul's execution for a while. In the face of all of this, Paul still did not compromise the truth of the gospel. Thank you, Jesus. It turns out that Paul was just as prepared to die for his testimony as Stephen was. Again, my brothers and sisters, what are we to do? What are we to take from this text? I believe there are many areas a preacher can emphasize, but I believe one significant area of emphasis is this, that we are called to make every effort to relate to our brothers and sisters who are not in the faith, you see. But we must not compromise the gospel no matter the cost, the social cost, uh, the, the, the financial cost, the emotional cost. Do not compromise the gospel no matter what it's going to cost you, do you see. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, our lives may be the only epistles that men ever read our lives. We are the ambassadors of the kingdom of God here on this earth. We compromise the gospel in three ways. There are three ways we compromise the gospel. By not living the truth, by not speaking the truth, and by not knowing the truth. Okay? By not living the truth, speaking the truth, 
and knowing the truth. By living the truth, what I mean by this is you do not conduct your life in a manner consistent with the truth of the gospel. In other words, you contradict the gospel message by how you live your life. By not speaking the truth, I, I mean just that. You're, you're a habitual liar. Or you lie for gain, or you lie for prestige, or you lie to, to, to make a name for yourself, or there's a host of reasons, but that is compromising the gospel. Not knowing the truth, this is important because it's not oftentimes emphasized in, in, in many churches and in many uh, different uh, denominations, if you will, even in the more conservative sect of evangelicalism. By not knowing the truth, I mean to say, you do not know the true teachings of Jesus, you do not know the true teachings of Jesus. In that way, you compromise the gospel. There is no good, no good, no good at all that you believe the Lord has saved your soul, but your mind has yet to be saved. Jesus comes to free the whole person. Your mind must be sanctified just as your body must be. And that is important. We must know what Jesus teaches, what the Lord commands of us, so that we can live it out, so that we can teach others. It is not a mystery. There is no great mystery to how to be a Christian. Read the Bible. Learn from the preachers. Learn from the teachers the gifts that God has given to the community, to the body of Christ. And I get it. It's hard to live this out consistently, right? Living out the truth, speaking the truth, and knowing the truth. That is hard to do in every single context, but we must live into our new identity. You are no longer the person you used to be. When Jesus came and rescued you, he made you new. You are a new person. I think when Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 5, that you are a new creation, I don't think that's figurative language. I think you are really New. I think something has changed inside of you that you are now free from the shackles and bondage of the evil one and now are free to produce righteousness in the name of Jesus that he's imputed to you. You are free. We must live as such. We have been made doves, but some of us have been living as worms. You have been made free. Do not compromise the gospel. But some might ask, Quincy, why must we seek to be relatable? I'm so Christian now, you know, I'm so new and holy and sanctified now, you know. I have almost nothing in common with these peons, you see. What is the deal? And, and I think this question misses the point. I believe if uh, this question was posed to Jesus, he would rebuke them in love and remind them of the beauty of God and the grace of God. Why should you strive to be relatable? The answer is so simple. Because Jesus was and is the perfect example of someone who made every effort to relate to you, to me, to humanity. Don't you see, don't you see that Jesus, who is God, became man? We hear it so much that I think it becomes white noise. That's, that's a significant statement. Jesus, who is God, became man. He didn't need to do it. He didn't have to do it. Why? Because he wanted, he needed to relate. He wanted to relate to you, to humanity. Like you and me, Jesus experienced temptation, hunger, thirst, fatigue, betrayal, anxiety. Wow. Jesus, who became man, related to us so much that he experienced friendship and love and camaraderie. He played games. 
We so deify Jesus that we lose his humanity. I'm a huge DC guy, okay? I'm a huge DC guy. And uh, my favorite hero in the universe is Superman. My son's name is, my firstborn's his name is Kal-El. I don't know if you picked up, that is, a, that is a Superman's Kryptonian name. The only way it worked, my wife would have never went for it. It means uh, voice of God in Hebrew, but I didn't care. I just had to find a selling point to get the, to get the name in there, you know. But that's what works for her. It could have meant anything, and I still would have named him that. No, um, now where was I? Oh, yes. And, uh, and so Superman, right, who he really is is Superman. Who he pretends to be is Clark Kent. And that's how many of us think of Jesus. Who Jesus really is, is is God, but he pretends to be human. But my brothers and sisters, that's just not good theology. Jesus was 100% flesh and bone. He was human. He made mistakes. You can err without sinning, did you know? He learned. That's what it tells us in Luke chapter 2. He was truly human. He could relate to us. I think Hebrews even tells us we have not such a high priest who cannot relate to our weaknesses. This is Jesus. He descended so low from the divine uh, status that he had from the throne of God to become just like us, to relate to us in every way. And it was in relating to us by becoming man that Jesus was able to set us free from the shackles of sin and death. And Jesus did all this without ever compromising his message. When we read the Gospels, right, and we see the characters that Jesus is communing with on a regular basis with, with, with women who make a living um, uh, 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 selling themselves and, and uh, the dope dealers and the, and the, um, uh, the, people, the, the people that the culture did not like. Jesus is hanging around these people, getting to know them. God, God is doing this, laughing with them, speaking to them, the lepers, hanging out with them. Jesus, Jesus finding points of, 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 of relation, points of contact, of common ground with these people. Why? Because he loves them in hopes that they come to the kingdom of God. And here's the thing. Not all of them did come to the kingdom of God. But did that stop Jesus from pursuing them as people, as people to be loved, as people to be cherished? Not at all. He ate with them. He got to know them. But Quincy, how could I learn to be more relatable? And how can I obtain the boldness to never compromise the gospel? That's the key. It is like scissors. It only works if you have both of them. Relatability, finding common ground, and the heart to not compromise the truth of the gospel. It only works with those two. I know many preachers who never compromised the gospel, but have been so high and mighty that they have, they have made no effort to get to know anyone who is not in their denomination or in the world. And I have other people who are ministers and friends of mine who make every effort to relate, but compromise the gospel in areas that I think that that's not going to be fruitful for them. You're not bringing them to the truth. You're bringing them to a program or, or some other movement that is fun right now, but has no eternal power. So how can I do this? And, and you already know that it's impossible to live like Jesus, to be like Jesus without the enablement of the Spirit, 
We kid ourselves by thinking that we can do this by taking some courses or we can do this by learning a few more tricks or, 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 or kind of getting rid of some trauma in the past. None of these are bad things. But if you want to learn how to be like Christ, if you want the boldness to never compromise the gospel, you have to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. And so some, a clear practical way to do this, I think that is apt for this text that Paul teaches us in Acts 22, and I think I can argue spans from one all the way to the end of the book, is that we must learn to put on Christ. Remember what Jesus said himself? He said, apart from me, apart from Christ, you can do nothing. So to achieve true relatability without compromise in every situation, we must learn and practice. This is key. We must learn and practice to invite Jesus into our lives in every space we occupy. To invite Jesus in our lives in every space we occupy. My grandmother had a saying, um, uh, you know, take the Lord along with you. And there was a, everywhere you go, there was a call and response song that they would sing during testimony service that my grandmother would always, would always say. And she always had her, her pet phrases. But it stuck with me when I was a young man because she had in her mind that when she went to the grocery store, there Jesus was with her. Wow. I was like, Bro, why, would he, why would you care to have a, When you're playing basketball on the basketball court, there Jesus is with you. When you're going to work or you're having a difficult time in a meeting or as a, as a stay-at-home parent, no matter what you do, as you're washing dishes or washing clothes, Jesus is with you. This is significant. And as we allow Jesus to occupy not only the this, this space within us as a living temple, but as a person, we must be shaped by his teachings. It's important not to just know what Jesus taught but to be shaped by what he's taught. And I think the culture misunderstands this. And some, some of the, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, scholars I read misunderstand this. We are always being formed by something. We're always being formed by something. The question is, in what direction are you being formed? Are you becoming more like Christ? Or are you slowly drifting away from Christ? The ethicists teach us that your ethics can atrophy. You see, when you're not living a constant life of practice in the spiritual disciplines, they quickly atrophy. It's like learning a language. I don't know if many of us have learned a new language and you, let's say, grown to be quite proficient at it. Have you noticed that in a, in a small span of time, your proficiency decreases? Same with the spiritual life. That's why Paul tells us we must renew our minds constantly. That's why he tells us that we must put on the new man daily. These are a lifestyle these are lifestyle commitments that Jesus has called us to. And so we must be shaped by his teachings, and we must allow Jesus to be with us in every space we're in. And this would allow us to find points of commonality without ever compromising the gospel. Amen? And so allow me to conclude by summarizing what I think are the key points of, of this passage for our time today. In order for Paul to be effective in his defense and witness, he makes every effort to relate to his audience in the temple. But Paul uses this common, grounds, common ground as a means, not an ends, but as a means for sharing the full gospel that Gentiles are equally partakers of the promise of Yahweh. And Paul does not compromise this truth even in the face of death. And my brothers and sisters, neither should we. Neither should we. 
Let me end with some application questions. What are some ways you find common ground? What are some ways you can find common ground with your colleagues, certain family members, and or your next door neighbor? In what areas or situations of your life do you feel that you compromise the gospel? Remember I said there are three ways that one can compromise the gospel. Not living the truth, not speaking the truth, and not knowing the truth. What are some areas where you feel like you compromise in these areas? And why do you compromise in these particular areas and not others? It's important to reflect. It's important to look at our lives. Recall what Socrates says, right? The unexamined life is not worth living. He's right. He is right on the money. Oh, some of the saints are looking at me like, oh, he done quoted a, a pagan philosopher. We have to read widely, my brothers and sisters. We have to read widely. That's another sermon, another time. The classics, blessed be the Lord. But we need, to, uh, 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 to, we need to evaluate our lives. We need to ask ourselves questions and constantly say, Lord, how am I growing in you? If I may, as an exercise, um, and I'm getting ready to pray and close out here, but this is significant. I feel the Spirit move me in this direction. What I do at home is I have a prayer journal that I, that I read every morning, and I have a list of names. And I have in my prayer journal a section of areas that I need to improve in spiritually, and areas where the Lord has been growing me. And I have it written down. And if you're not sure where you're weak, ask your spouse. I'm sure they will give you a nice, healthy list of areas where you can improve. And I have it written down, and I have it in my prayer. Lord, help me to improve on, let's say, my patience. My patience, especially with my children. I have, uh, what do I have, a four, a two, and an eight-month-year-old. And I'm not good with children, period. And so my patience is short. And so I say, Lord, my wife, that's not number one on my list. Lord, help me with my patience. And I'm conscious of my weaknesses, of my iniquities, so that Jesus can transform me from the inside out. And over time, it doesn't happen in a second, but over time, you'll slowly see that the weaknesses you had by the power of the Spirit, you're being moved to be more patient. You'll surprise yourself. You'll surprise yourself when Zeus, my, my middle child, took the milk and poured it on the couch. I, what a, it was an experiment. My wife tried to say it was some experience. No, the boy was silly. He took the milk and poured it on the couch, you know. And it's milk. You got to get it out. And usually I would just go crazy, like, ah, But I didn't go crazy. I was mad. Don't get me wrong. But I didn't blow up in my normal way. And we all, my wife, we all were surprised. And I said, gee, I don't know what happened. The Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit, when you are seeking to grow deeper with Jesus and you have a clear track on how you want to grow in the Lord, he will always meet you there. Jesus will always meet you there. We do not passively grow spiritually. It is an active process of partnering with the Holy Spirit. That's the whole idea of the book of Philippians. Now, forgive me on that tangent, but I felt like that was needed to be said. Amen? Amen? So let us be relatable without ever compromising the gospel and by leaning in onto Jesus. Let us pray. Dad, I thank you. That you are a good father who gives us models on how to relate to the world in the scriptures. And that you are a good father who gave us Jesus, who related to us by, in ways we can't imagine, Lord. I pray that you be with us this week. I pray with, that you be with us and, and, and would show us areas where we can grow and develop. Lord, I pray that you would uh, uh, speak to us even now on people who we've been avoiding. Though we feel like we should speak to them and get to know them, Lord, I pray that you show us how to engage with them, how to get to know them, Lord. And I pray 
uh, with these various points of common ground, that that would be an open door to sharing our lives and to sharing the gospel, Lord. But in so doing, Lord, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would give us boldness never to compromise the gospel. Because the truth with the capital T is the only thing that will set us free. And quite frankly, Lord, Jesus, your power and your blood is the only balm that we need to heal this land. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.